Welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. I'm Peter Mahler. You're in for a treat this episode. I recently had the pleasure of interviewing Don Widener. Don is Dean Emeritus of Florida State University College of Law, where he served as Dean for almost 25 years. Don is one of the country's leading authorities on partnerships, LLCs, and fiduciary duties. He was one of the principal architects and served as reporter for the revised Uniform Partnership Act and is co-author of a leading treatise on RUPA published by Thomson Reuters. Don still teaches at FSU, while he also maintains a private practice as a mediator and arbitrator at the Florida firm Upchurch, Watson, White & Max. I was at the LLC Institute meeting last fall in Tampa, where Don was the keynote speaker, on a topic that has blossomed into a forthcoming article in The Business Lawyer called LLC Default Rules Are Hazardous to Member Liquidity, which has now blossomed into the interview you're about to hear. Maybe I shouldn't use the word infectious amidst the current pandemic, but Don speaks with an infectious enthusiasm for all manner of topics concerning partnerships and unincorporated business entities. He's really a delight to listen to, as I discovered last fall at the LLC Institute. As I mentioned, my interview of Don focused on his article on LLC statutory default rules that hinder member liquidity, which was not always the case if you go back to the first generation of LLC statutes. It wasn't until the late 1990s that you started to see LLC acts being amended to deny a default right of withdrawal and making the duration of LLCs perpetual. Then along came the 2006 Revised Uniform LLC Act that further endorsed what some call the corporatization of LLCs, that is, taking them further away from their partnership roots. Don has a lot to say on the subject. Perhaps he's at his most passionate making the point that LLC default rules should be based on the presumptive intention of the target group, that is, small, informal, unrepresented entrepreneurs who often have no written operating agreement or a minimal written operating agreement. Don's thesis is that the corporate-like default rules that have evolved, impairing the ability of LLC members to exit and cash out their membership interests, don't cater to the presumptive intent of the target group. The interview is a little over 40 minutes. You'll definitely want to stick with it. Don's a fascinating speaker with strong opinions. And now, without further ado, here's my interview of Don Widener. I'm very pleased to have as my guest for this episode of the podcast, Don Widener, Dean Emeritus and Alumni Centennial Professor at the Florida State University College of Law. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Peter, and thank you for having me. I consider it a great honor. Well, the honor is all mine, Don. Uh, I was at the LLC Institute in Tampa, Florida last November, where you were the keynote speaker at a luncheon talking on the subject of that which we're going to be talking about today, LLC default rules or hazardous to member liquidity, which is the title of a forthcoming article in The Business Lawyer that in in essence captures and, and digs a whole lot deeper and in a much more scholarly fashion, the talk you gave at the LLC Institute. So I I couldn't be more pleased to have you talking about, you know, LLC member liquidity. It is an issue that is very, very central to my practice as a business divorce lawyer. The lack of member liquidity is, is, you know, as a practicing lawyer, I can say to you that it is a subtext for much of the work that I do. And so I was, you know, very, very interested when I came across your article. Again, it's called LLC default rules are hazardous to member liquidity. 
It will be published in the Business Lawyer. I understand, Don, that it's available currently on SSRN. Is that right? Yes, it is. So, Don, why don't you just sort of set the stage for us and talk about what the overall scope and thesis of your article is? Well, at the most general level, I am asking about the rules that govern people who own a business together, and in particular, people who own a business together uh, through a an LLC. And you might ask, well, what is the source of their rights and obligations as among themselves? And the ideal answer might be that it's in a written agreement. The ideal answer might be that, that each of the members, each of the owners has retained counsel and they have gotten together and over time negotiated a thorough agreement that covers all sorts of things, uh, what they will contribute to the LLC, how they'll share profits, losses, and distributions, how management decisions will be made. Uh, whether they have a right to be bought out at some point, uh, how a decision will be made to liquidate the business. Modern business law, as you know, essentially provides that parties can agree to whatever they want. Indeed, some of the statutes themselves say that freedom of contract is the rule, and uh, others that uh, provide that in their legislative history, that Behind most modern business organization laws, like LLC law, is the principle that, that the parties have great freedom to contract. Uh, the problem is that, that, that many people don't exercise that freedom for, for any one of a number of reasons. And so the question is, well, what if you have not provided for, oh, let's say, uh, how you'll share in distributions or how the business will be managed? or whether there's a buyout right. What if you haven't provided for those things? And and indeed, my thesis is that, in my experience, most people who form LLCs do not have agreements that provide most of those details. Indeed, many people who own businesses through LLCs don't have any writing other than the certificate or articles of organization that they have to file in order to form an LLC. They either have no written agreement or they have a bare bones written agreement. And so the the modern LLC statute, like the modern partnership statute, is in large part a standby operating agreement for an LLC. The rules of the statute are default rules in that they they constitute an agreement for the parties unless the the parties have a provable agreement to the contrary, point by point. And they're called default rules because they're like default settings on on a computer. You know, if you bring on your uh, word processing software, it'll set a margin for you. And if you don't like it, uh, you can change it to something else. So that margin is called uh, a default rule. So the question is, uh, how do you decide these these default rules when you're when you're drafting a statute? And uh, and I've spent some time drafting business organization statutes, and so uh, you you have to decide who the rules are for. Uh, and it seems to me, uh, in the case of LLCs, the rules should not be for the highly sophisticated LLCs that are going to have many members that have very detailed agreements that have been negotiated with the. Uh, aid of sophisticated uh, business lawyer that the default because those people already have their by definition they have a a, a written agreement that they've settled on with the assistance of sophisticated business counsel the default rules the the off the rack operating agreement should be for the for the small business people who don't have the uh, the benefit of counsel and who may have little or no operating agreement. So you, you, you say, well, if the default rules are 
drafted with them in mind. Uh, uh, tell me a little bit more about, about their characteristics. They tend to be people who, for, for any one of a number of reasons, don't want to have a lawyer uh, and, and they don't want to have a detailed written agreement. Uh, and they, they may not want to have a lawyer because they, they may not like lawyers as, as an aesthetic matter, or they may not want to uh, pay lawyers, or they may not want to face the difficult questions that business lawyers may put to them. And they, they may only want to focus on the positive. They don't want to face the negative. Uh, that's one reason why, uh, why, why people don't have these detailed agreements. They don't want to face the unpleasant issues. Yeah, I, I call it. Uh, they're in the bloom of love, and they don't think it's you know, necessary, and they don't, they don't want to hear about the potential for problems or divorces down the road. Um, you know, the, the 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 phenomenon you're describing. I mean, I see it across the board. It's not just limited to LLCs. I deal with you know plenty of you know business you know similar business corporation forms where they're formed by two or three or four part you know shareholders, and uh, they don't have a shareholders agreement. Dealing with partnerships, general partnerships, LLPs, even that don't have a part written partnership agreement. And I think the incentives or disincentives that you're describing really apply across the board. People don't want to spend the money, or sometimes it's just as bad. They're going online and they're buying, you know, for seventy-five bucks, one hundred and twenty-five bucks. You know, they're buying. You know, I won't. I won't mention names of, of the prominent right. suppliers of online forms, but you know, I've seen firsthand situations where those online forms get them into more trouble than than the trouble that they've saved them. So, but but I, it's always been my view, Don, and and I think you're. You're, you're gonna. We're gonna dig into this deeper on this interview. That if I was going to be a choice of being a shareholder, and I'm of course New York centric, right? That's my familiar ground dealing with the New York laws. If I'm, if I have a choice between being a non-control member of a New York business corporation versus a non-control member of a New York LLC, I'll always do the former. I'll always do the former because I have a higher level of protections for me as a non-control shareholder than I do as a non-control LLC member. And I think that's a pretty good segue, if I can say so, into the, the more focused topic of your article, which is you know focused on uh, barriers to LLC member liquidity. Let's see if we can focus now on that issue. And, and I just want to sort of start by making the observation that you know LLCs have been around for 25 or more years. In those 25 years, you know, we have lawyers getting to know the statutes, uh, accountants who are often very important players in uh, new entity formation other business advisors. And then, of course, we have the lawyers litigating these things in court decisions, deciding, construing, applying the LLC statute. The question is, okay, it's been 25 years. We now know the costs and benefits of either having or not having written agreements. We know what should or shouldn't be in the written agreements. What's your concern now, 25 years into this experiment? The short of it is, I think that the, the default rules in the modern LLC statutes don't fit what I call the target group, the people that I think the default rules should be aimed at, which is the small groups of entrepreneurs who form businesses without the aid of counsel, with little or no written operating agreement, who may be relatively undiversified. That may be that they have a lot of their services, their, their service time or their capital tied up in a particular venture and who are illiquid, who, because of that illiquidity, expect to be getting some kind of return on their investment, perhaps through 
uh, through salaries or, or, or current distributions. And I think these folks don't necessarily understand the law that, that you point out many lawyers do. And I also might want to point out, I don't know that you may be traveling in more sophisticated circles than, than many people are. You're still seeing opinions you know, from courts coming out and talking about limited liability corporation. I mean, so uh, uh, not all courts... Uh, even understand uh, the difference. I think many business lawyers do. And I think, again, many people forming LLCs do not have a business lawyer at their side. In many cases, not only don't they want to pay for the lawyer, but they're relying on a pre-existing relationship rather than an agreement, relying on the fact that he had done business uh, with this person before or relying on the, on the fact that they're going into business with somebody who's a friend or a family member. And, and I've watched the LLC laws move further away from what I think is the, the, the appropriate set of default rules and more toward corporate default rules that I, that I think are, are, are counterintuitive. My basic concern is that the default rules ought to be based on the presumptive intent of the target group and the target group are these small business people who form without the aid of a lawyer who intend to to operate informally and who regardless of what they put into the deal all tend to have some expectation of being a part in management so the the benchmarks i use are the the two uniform acts and and the first was the the uniform uh, llc act of, of 1996 and then the second one is the uniform llc act of 2006 and in even that 10 year period the law changed dramatically in uh, respect to the two major points of of the article you're kind enough to refer to and they're re- they're very closely related member liquidity when do, when do you have a right to cause the liquidation of the business or to be bought out and then the second issue is while you're stuck in there what kind of rights do you have to bring a legal action against the other members so those rules have just changed so dramatically starting off at a point in the 1996 act where it was much closer to what to what i consider to be the presumptive intent of the parties these are the default rules that apply among the owners of the business. You can ask three basic questions, right? First question you can ask is, what are the rules that they probably have in mind but didn't actually express in their agreement? And then two, what are the rules that they probably would have in mind if you had called the issue to their attention? And then number three, if you can't answer one or two with any confidence, think, well, what's a rule that you think is a fair rule? And, and so my basic critique is that, that where we are under LLC law today is pretty far from what I consider the presumptive intent of the small business people who, uh, who form without the, uh, without the assistance of counsel. One of the things I hear you saying is that the, there's been a movement in terms of the governing LLC laws from something that's more akin to a partnership model at the start, and it has moved in the direction of a corporate model. Is that a fair summary? Yes. I know from your reading your bio that you were integrally involved in the drafting of the, I think you were the reporter for the Uniform Law Commission that drafted their revised Uniform Partnership Act, correct? Yes, that's correct. And I gather that you're, much of what you're talking about in the LLC context is drawing upon your, your, the, the experience you had going through that drafting process. 
Yes, we spent seven years trying to decide, you know, what did the parties probably have in mind but failed to express, and what would the parties probably agree to if they'd had their attention called to the matter, and and what's a fair rule. And and in that process, by the way, we had to constantly refer to our target group because on, on the one hand you're on a drafting committee and that and the, the tendency is to get real fancy right well we want to look at the the you know what was then who knows then the big eight accounting firms or the the global law firms or the global consulting firms and, and we kept saying no no wait a minute they have their own fully negotiated agreement what what we want to focus on is the is the group of of three guys you know mo larry and curly who have a business in which they they own and operate uh, a truck. What is your focus? There, there have been numerous critiques of the current LLC default rules. My critique is a presumed presumptive intent critique. My basic critique is this is not what small business people would have had in mind. It's not what they had in mind. It's not what they would have had in mind had their attention been called to it. Now, to some extent, I'm making empirical judgments without the, the benefit of, of having uh, of having surveys. I think the surveys have reported on the prevailing lack of documentation. Don, can you identify what were the specific rules, default rules, governing quiddity rights and remedial uh, rights in the 96 96- Act and here again we're talking about the the Uniform Act uh, LLC Act. What precisely are we talking about? And then how were they changed in the two hundred six two thousand six Act? The legislative history of of the ninety six Act essentially said we're looking at small groups of entrepreneurs who want to operate informally and to organize without the benefit of counsel. That is our 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 target group. All the remaining issues. Among the members of that target group, the 1996 Act says that all the remaining rules are based on one of two key, what they call designations. The, the first was, is the group, is the, is the group of business people who get together, are, are they organizing on an at-will basis or are, have they agreed to stay together in business for either for a specific term, five years, or for a specific undertaking? until the condominium project is constructed and 80% sold out. And so so that's the first term. You know, is it is it an at will association in business? The second thing is, is it member managed or manager managed? The the 96 Act said so this is in deciding the rights among the parties, we we want to look at whether you have member managed LLC or manager managed LLCs. And you can see that well, if you agreed to put all management in somebody else, then that would affect the default rules about the the management rights uh, within the within the firm of the of the others. So it said that here are these agreements. So on on the first issue, the 1996 Act says, okay, we uh, we want to give you a right to be bought out, and if it's an at will LLC, uh, you have a right to be bought out right away. That is, it's an at will LLC in the sense that you haven't agreed to stay together in business for any particular term of years or any particular business transaction. So you have a right to be bought out. You didn't agree to be locked in, so you have a right to be bought out. And you can uh, be bought out, uh, let's say, when you dissociate and uh, that for the value of your interest at, at that time. Now, the, the LLC Act, the 96 Act, unlike the partnership law, said that uh, uh, you don't have the right to cause a liquidation. Now, now, why didn't it say that? Well, it didn't say that, I think, because 
a lot of people always thought that that partnership rule w- was a harsh rule, that you destabilize the business. If you, if you couldn't prove that it was a term partnership, that, that it was a very powerful remedy to give any member of an at-will business the, the right to blow it up uh, at any time. So the 1996 Act says, no, you don't have the right to be, blow it up, but you have a right to be bought out yeah. at its current value unless it was a term LLC. If it's a term LLC, then you not only don't have the right to blow it up, but you don't have a right to destabilize the firm by pulling out your capital at that time. Yeah. So it said two things. You don't have a right to be bought out until the end of the term, and you don't have to be, and the buyout price is not determined until the end of the term. Uh, and so you're forced to stay in there, and if the, if, the, if the business is going down the tubes, you've got to take the trip down the tubes with, the, with, with, your, with your fellow members. I mean, what you're describing, I'm not sure it lines up exactly, but it does sound reminiscent of the uh, default rules under the revised Uniform Partnership Act. Uh, yeah, similar, except it, the, the Partnership Act, again, had the, the right, to the, the, the full liquidation right, which means the right to cause a, a, a liquidation of the business, the right to cause a business wind-up. And the 1996 Act says, well, that, uh, that's too harsh a, a, a remedy for somebody. And also, we can now provide for a more corporate-like continuity. We don't need to dance away from from anything that looks like corporate corporate continuity so we can we can lock that person into the business just to compare it to the new york experience and then maybe you can recompare it to you know what was happening on a broader scale either as reflected in the uniform act or from your knowledge of what other states have done independent of the uniform act for new york llc's through the lens of member formed member managed llc's that either don't have any operating agreement or have some operating agreement that that doesn't really vary the default rules under the original 94 llc law of new york you had a right to withdraw on 6 months notice unless otherwise provided in the operating agreement, but under my premise, there is no operating agreement. So you have a you have an absolute right. right to give six months notice and withdraw. Now that withdrawal, under other provisions of the of the LLC law, would either trigger a dissolution and liquidation of the LLC unless the remaining members opted to continue the business. And if they did opt to continue the business, then they would be required. When I say they, I mean the LLC would be required to buy out the withdrawing member at fair value. And so you had a clear path or a clearish path, I should say, to liquidity in the absence of an operating agreement that didn't provide otherwise. After Check the Box came in in the late 90s, and I, I believe there was a flood of similar legislation across the country, they flipped those very mm. uh, default rules. You no longer had a right to withdraw unless the operating agreement said you you had that right, right? So you have no default withdrawal right. Door, you know, exactly. They also flipped the provision dealing with dissolution events to say that the withdrawal or death or other events concerning a member did not trigger dissolution unless the remaining members decided to dissolve at that point. So it was more like an opt-in dissolution as opposed to an opt-out as it was before. You know, those in, in, in terms of specific provisions, those were the provisions that made it more corporation light and close the door on a default rule that allowed liquidity. Is anything like that parallel in the, in the transition from the 96 yeah. to the 06 Uniform Acts? 
Yes, it does. You're exactly right. Uh, that's the shift. You know, another, another way of saying the, the check the box rule said you can you can make your your LLC just like a corporation and have it uh, treated as if it's a partnership for tax purposes. That didn't mean that you had to do that, but some of the states moved to do that. Say, oh, we we can do this now. So let's put these corporate characteristics in uh, as a matter of statutory default rule. There was no need to do that except, uh, I guess it was around 1990, there was there was a, a Congress made a change, in a way an unrelated change in the tax law. It had become common practice, especially in the case of limited partnership, it had become common practice to have agreements for in family businesses for for estate and gift tax purposes, agreements that took away the liquidity rights of, I think, limited partners and LLC members that that said basically we're going to what people said was we're going to so hobble our own liquidity rights that we're going to drive down the value of the of our ownership interests that we report for estate and gift tax purposes. So in, in uh, I guess it was 1990, the, the uh, Congress came down with this new rule. It said, well, we see what you're doing. If you people out there, you sophisticated estate planners for family-owned businesses, if you are going to draft these weird agreements hobbling the liquidity rights and hence the valuation of your family business interests, we're going to ignore those weird agreements if they're more restrictive than the state default rules. So the family business people, they went to their, you know, their, their friendly legislators and they said, oh, you got to help the family business, the family farm, the family ranch, the family yada, yada, yada. You got to help us out. And so you've got to make the liquidity rules much more restrictive. Part of the way I put it in the article is that, you know, to, to benefit the few, you change the liquidity rule for the many. And, and, and there was sort of like a, a rush to do that. And, you know, what, what a lot of the state legislators, they said, oh, well, we can do, you can do this in Delaware. Well, we, we need to be able to do it, for example, in Florida, because otherwise we're going to lose business in Florida when the more commodious uh, LLC acts created in other places. So the target group chain, instead of focusing on the, the small business per- people who formed without the assistance of attorneys and operated very informally. Instead, we said, oh, what we've got to protect is the successful family business who operates with the assistance of a sophisticated estate planner, whether that's a a lawyer or or, or an accountant or a team. Bang, we lost all liquidity rights. So what happened in 2006, the Uniform Act, just 10 years, the rules changed radically to say you have no liquidity rights. And, And what it did was was basically take out with the original, you know, the first wave of acts, which had almost 20 years of experience behind them, the 1996 acts provided, we're going to eliminate that basic underpinning of an at-will versus term LLC. That whole fundamental distinction between at-will versus term LLC is gone. So the, the current acts simply say, like the Corporation Act say, that an LLC is a perpetual entity. If you want to draft yourself into a term LLC, you're going to do it. But, but what we're going to say is that you have formed a perpetual entity and you 
never have a right to be bought out from it. You have a right to stay in it and get whatever distributions, what we call, you know, current distributions, it throws off and you can get liquidating distributions if it liquidates. So that fundamental concept of at will versus term is gone. You know, there's a long history in, in co-ownerships where the, the common law, it doesn't lock people into co-ownership. So if you and I become just property co-owners, you know, tenants in common, we're not, neither one of us is going to be locked into the other for a term unless we've agreed to that term. And the, the old partnership law and the early LLC law reflected that. Listening to you and having read your article, I have to confess, I was not aware of the role of tax and estate planning in the change from the 06 to, to 96 to the 06 Act, even the change that I've described in the New York LLC law. I was really not aware of that. I always assumed, I shouldn't say assumed, I think I had heard somewhere that those changes were really not designed to for the benefit of a small minority, but for across the board businesses, that it would um, enhance the ability of LLCs, small and large, to get bank financing. The more stable the entity, the easier it is to get the financing. The banks are not worried about dissolution, you know, unanticipated dissolution events. That's what I thought really was motivating the changes, and I hear you saying otherwise. You're talking about different states and different people and, and collaborative projects, and some people may have had that in mind. It doesn't resonate with me on the issue of the appropriateness of the default rule. The issue is, what's the what are the rules of law that you're going to apply among co-owners of a business unless, as you said, unless they've opted out of them? So what are, what are the what are those default rules? You know, I've talked to uh, you know a friend of mine is a a, a president of, of one of the local banks, and you know and he says, look, you know, we 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 look to the entity, but in a small a small business, and it doesn't matter whether it's in you know corporate form or an LLC form. Uh, we want personal guarantees of people. Now, th- that's not to say that in some cases people are more um, are more comfortable with, let's say, a corporate form or an LLC form, or maybe maybe there are some people who are more comfortable with an LLC form. If you can say, well, yeah, it's just like a corporation, except we can get a pass through of losses there. We can get a tax as a partnership. Again, my critique is. What is the presumptive intent of the parties? Are, are, are the parties uh, going to expect, the parties who have formed without the benefit of counsel, what are they going to expect you have done uh, with regard to their agreement among themselves? And I don't know whether I, I should add at this point uh, something, but it, it's interesting what, what the drafters of the 2006 Act said was because we've, we've taken away these liquidity rights of members of LLCs, right? The co- of the owners, we've taken away their liquidity rights. They now no longer have a right to liquidate the business. They don't have any right to be bought out of the business. That because we've done that, it is quote necessary to give them a statutory cause of action for relief in the event that they are being oppressed while they're locked into that entity. And I would say a couple of things. A, they had that right anyway. Uh, under under the first generation of LLC acts, uh, but uh, but second, not all the states have like my my home state, my F- Florida. Florida looked at the uh, the 2006 LLC Act and says, "Well, we really like it, and we like the elimination of the liquidity rights, but we sure as hell don't like a cause of action, a statutory cause of action for oppression." 
So we're going to we're going to skip that part of it. And, uh, and New York was yeah. far, was far ahead of uh, Florida in that regard. We the New York statute has never had an oppression cause of action for dissolution. That is less problematic in the in the sense of less troublesome to to the minor, minority co-owner so long as there's a buyout right. But if you eliminate the buyout right, then then slapping down the remedies and sort of that's the second part of my piece says okay looking at now you're locking these these people in what uh, are their remedies and the the first generation of LLC Act the 1996 using as a benchmark the the 1996 LLC Act that act continued the partnership rule and so it said look if uh, if Mo Larry and Curly are members of the LLC. Larry and Curly agreed not to hire their their put their crazy relatives on the payroll and and they went ahead and did it anyway and Mo said hey uh, you've breached our, our agreement and therefore uh, I can sue you the 1996 act said well you can go yeah you have a direct cause of action to sue any other co-owner right any other member of the LLC for either breach of the operating agreement or for a violation of any of your statutory rights so that's what the 1996 act LLC act said then you get to 2006 and by then it said Oh, no, because, Mo, if your claim is that Larry and Curly have hurt the LLC rather than you personally, then you have no standing to bring that claim. Why? Because it's the claim of the of the LLC. It's not your claim. And therefore, you have the right, if any, you have the right to bring a derivative action. And you're into this mess then of, of, of when is a claim that you have a direct claim or a, a derivative claim. And that is, and I know you know this, but that, you know that has become one of the most heavily litigated issues in the in the whole LLC arena. My problem is sort of with this concept. I get uncomfortable when you start running away with abstractions. And I think the 2006 acts and the current acts run away with abstractions and they say, this, this LLC now is really, 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 really an entity. And the claims that you think you have against that, that Mo has against Larry and Curly, Mo really doesn't have. And in the, in the argot, not of the statute, but of the official comments in the case law, the argot, the jargon is Mo doesn't have standing to bring those claims because they are they're derivative. If, if all Mo is saying is that you're hurting the LLC because you're dissipating its assets by paying paying your crazy relatives, that they, what he's really saying is that the LLC itself is hurt. So underlying that and and again it's it's so confusing and you look at these cases and it, they give you a headache you try to figure out what policy is being served when you have three people in an LLC and they can't go to court and they, they can't just lit- litigate it out which was the partnership rule and the early and the early LLC rule and you I'll bring this down to earth here and so, you, you you basically have a conception in the in the current iteration of the LLC acts that the operating agreement is is not a normal commercial contract. The legislative history of these statutes is clear. So that is, Mo, Larry, and Curly, Mo might say, hey, Larry and Curly and I had an agreement. And if this is a normal three-way commercial contract, then I can sue the other parties to the contract for its breach. LLC law says, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, what you may have thought was a, uh, a normal commercial contract is not. 
this is a special agreement called an LLC agreement, and you don't have standing to sue for the garden variety breach of that agreement. And so, so my concern is, uh, is that that's counterintuitive. I don't think people expect that. The proposition going back a little bit is that as the liquidity gates uh, closed, there is a sense that we can ameliorate the lack of liquidity by providing certain remedies to non-control. And again, our, our, we're looking at this through the lens of the mom and pop, I'll call it LLC, small member managed, you know, non-diverse uh, in terms of uh, investment interests, etc. The question is, do these remedies make up for in some fashion? I mean, does the oppression remedy provide a path to liquidity that's sufficient? And is it your view that the requirement, the standing requirements for bringing, you know, direct versus derivative claims don't serve the intended purpose? And if not, why not? I think that, uh, A, that some states did not put in the oppression remedy as a, as a trade-off uh, to the, the elimination of the, the, the liquidity racks. New York is one of those states, yes. And second, uh, then even if that remedy for its dissolution in the event of oppression, and I can't prove this by algebra, but my impression is that it is harder to establish oppression than it is to simply establish breach of contract. And so when the statutes that did add the cause of action for a dissolution in the event of repression to to compensate for taking away liquidity rights it 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 at the same time took away the easy access to judicial remedies you could no longer sue for for simple breach of contract and so i think that the addition of the cause of action for a dissolution in the event of oppression is more than offset by the taking away of standing to sue for breach of the operating agreement. Well, now I can't I can't prove that by algebra or chemistry or right. physics or anything else, but that's my impression. Right. But that also goes to those LLCs that have written agreements as opposed to the ones that don't. If there's no LLC agreement, there's no breach of contract claim to bring, right? Well, yeah, well there is because the the uh, the default rules in the statute are the contract. <laughs> well, that's I guess that's, that's true. That, that's your contract. That's, that's the problem. Let me, let, me, let me just share my perspective on the direct derivative sure. issue, which is that if we're talking about the what I'll call the mom and pop LLC, and it's usually not hard to meet the standing requirements for a derivative claim, at least under New York law, right? You know, there's almost always you can satisfy demand futility, so you don't even need to make a demand. You can get onto first base with your complaint. And if you're successful, the good news is that the courts in New York will, although it's not in the statute, they will follow the business corporation law rules and allow recovery of attorney's fees, which you, for for successfully bringing a derivative claim, which you wouldn't get if it was if it was prosecuted as a direct claim. So one could argue that it's actually better to have uh, it brought as a derivative claim. I'm sort of devil's advocating a bit with you here. I'm interested in your response. No, and I'm interested in, in your uh, thoughts on, on how that works in practice. I mean, this is where the, the if you look at the statutory rights under this this latest iteration of the LLC Act, it says, well, the, you know, if, if you bring a derivative action, then the LLC has a right to respond with a again with a special litigation committee and basically it can decide what to do with the law what to do with the lawsuit so you, you still have the uh, I think the right in the firm either to take over the derivative action or to divert it 
to a, a, a special litigation committee. I understand that that's pro- that may be a bit outside the talk of today's comments, but that's that's one of the mysterious things to me about the the, the absolute right statutory right of a, of a of a corporation to to wrest the derivative action out of the hands of the minority. Uh, owner and just turn it over to an SLC, Special Litigation Committee. You know, it's interesting. The last uh, podcast interview I did was a very different topic in some ways, but from 30,000 feet up, we were really, in some sense, talking about the same thing, what I call the the two worlds of LLCs, the sophisticated, highly capitalized, manager-managed LLCs that can certainly fend for themselves in terms of getting the best legal counsel and getting the best operating agreements that are negotiated at arm's length, perhaps versus the, again, I'll call them the mom and pop LLCs, those that have no agreements or online right. agreements or lawyer or get lawyers who really don't have the expertise to draft customized LLC agreements. Yet these two very different worlds are governed by the same default rules. And well, they- uh, it's, a dif- it's a difficult thing. It, it, and it reminds me that there was a movement, I don't think it ever really got off the ground in certain states anyway, of enacting close corporation statutes that is, that's a right. separate set of corporation default rules and mandatory rules for corporations that had, you know, no more than 35 shareholders or something like that. I haven't heard any talk about doing something similar for LLCs. In your article, you, in your conclusion anyway, what I saw you write about was restoring liquidity and remedial rules solely for member-managed LLCs. Yes, the pro- the problem existed in in the case of uh, of partnerships as well. Who did we have in mind when we were drafting the default rules in the partnership statute? Did we have the multinational law firms, the multinational accounting firms, the multinational consultancy firms, all LLPs? Did we have them in mind? Or do we have mom and pop in mind? Same uh, focus in the case of an LLC. Uh, now, l- let me say this. To some extent, my a critique of what's happening now under the current LLC default rules is the same critique that others have had about default rules applied, corporate default rules applied to closely held corporations. And so many people, since these rules took this turn, many academics have said, these default rules are inappropriate for the small, closely held business. They are just inappropriate. My critique embraces their earlier critiques and and so my contribution if if there is one is a default rule critique let's step back and just ask the fundamental question with whom do we draft these rules in mind who are the default rules for to get back to uh, to the basics and say it's for the small uh, business person i like the the language you used before about opt in and opt out the modern iteration of llc acts are are forcing small informally created and operated businesses to opt out of highly complex corporate rules that that in my judgment they they never would have thought uh thought of they never would have anticipated and so they'll it'll come as a big surprise you know here's an objection that came up apart from my presumptive intent argument for a long time it's been said well what public policy is being served by applying the direct derivative distinction in the context of a closely held corporation or LLC. 
And so it's not original with me to say, well, wait a minute. It, one of the reasons for the direct derivative distinction is to avoid a multiplicity of suits. We, In a publicly held corporation, we don't want 80 different shareholders filing lawsuit, raising essentially the same claims. Well, that issue isn't present if you've got Mo, Larry, and Curly, if you've got one person suing the other two people. You don't have the multiplicity of claims uh, concern. Uh, and number two, the direct derivative distinction says, well, we don't want the first of the 80 shareholders to sue to get a bigger piece of the action. So we want to have people share evenly. Well, well, that's not a problem if you get all three people there in court. And, and then the other reason is we don't want members suing if... They're going to suck assets out of the business to the detriment of creditors. Well, then let somebody raise, you know, you got Mo, Larry, and Curly. Let somebody raise an objection that allowing, allowing Mo to recover against Larry and Curly is going, to, is going to really suck assets out of the business to the detriment of creditors. I've dealt with, you know, lawyers who are just so extremely frustrated that they have to litigate up the chain on this direct derivative distinction when from the, the lawyer's point of view it's Mo Larry and Curly for God's sake. If any of the if any of the <laughs> legislative changes that you're proposing ever get enacted, I think we're gonna call it the Mo Larry and Curly Act. <laughs> well well good, I'll take it. Well, anyway, on, on that on that high note, Don, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on this. I'm going to encourage anyone who hears this, and of course, I'll post this interview on my blog with a link to the article and, and encourage everyone to read the article. I, I don't know, Don, is, is this topic one that is actively circulating in you know academic circles that you know of? Is it the subject of discussions in the uh, business law sections of bar associations? Do you see any momentum toward change in this area? I will say that I was pleased by some of the reaction uh, of uh, some of the people attending the LLC Institute who heard the talk. There were people who said that they would like to uh, call my article to the attention of their legislatures, their state legislatures. And one of the things I, uh, I'm looking forward to in the publication of The Business Lawyer is that uh, that is widely read by business lawyers uh, around the country and by people interested in business law reform. So I'm, I'm hoping it has some influence. The old uh, school of, of law professor that, uh, that says that uh, one of the finest uh, uh, things you can do is constructively influence the language of the law. Again, Don, thank you so much for speaking with me today. And I look forward to seeing uh, you know, where your efforts go and hope we can talk again on this podcast. Thank you so much. Right. My pleasure and honor. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Don as much as I enjoyed doing it. You can learn more about Don, his career, his scholarly writings by visiting my New York Business Divorce blog, that's nybusinessdivorce.com, where I've posted links to his bio and to his forthcoming article in The Business Lawyer on default rules in LLC member liquidity, or should I say illiquidity. Until next time, this is Peter Mahler. Thanks for listening and stay safe.